0: You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. If you have ever watched a movie or read a book, then you know that in any good story, there's always a moment in the story where something happens, where a character is clarified, the plot line is clarified, and everything either changes for the good or changes from the bad. And usually in that moment, the story, the movie, whatever it is, is made or broken based on that clarification and that moment about that character. So. You don't have to be ashamed of this, but if you are a Harry Potter fan in the room, uh, there's a moment in the Harry Potter series, and if you're not a Harry Potter fan because you're afraid of magic, I just want to remind you, Cinderella has magic too. Okay, okay, cool. Uh, Calm down is what I'm trying to say. It's just a story, it's fake, it's not real, okay? Narnia has magic, Lord of the Rings, should I go on? Every story has magic, okay, enough. Cool. Don't leave. That was not important to the sermon. Uh, but there's a moment in the Harry Potter series where you find out who one of the characters, his name is Snape, when you find out who he really is and what his intentions really are and how he's actually this guy who's redeeming the whole story the whole time and you don't really understand what's going on until he uh, reveals himself. And I don't want to give this away, but there's this moment, and if you're a Harry Potter fan, you probably have goosebumps right now just thinking about the moment when Snape says the thing about Harry Potter's mom, Lillian had their childhood best friends, and he's loved her always. This whole thing is beautiful. If you grew up around the Star Wars movies, and you didn't hear the key phrase before you saw the movies, and you hear this Luke, I am your father moment, that just clarifies everything to you. Now, I know our culture uses that term, uh, that phrase all the time, but in the moment, that was an unreal moment in the, uh, in the series because it made the, the story a redemption story uh, instead of just some crazy uh, revenge story good versus evil it turned into a redemption story so let me ask you this if you are a person who uh, when you watch a movie you would like to have no talking during the movie could you show me your hand my people amen if you watch a movie so that you can hang out with your friends and eat popcorn and socialize would you raise your hand are you extroverts it's terrible So you know during a movie, let's say you're watching this movie and it's getting really good, and then somebody comes in like 3 quarters of the way through the movie, like just when it's getting good, and they do not understand the plot line. And all of a sudden, they want to ask questions about everything that's been going on up to this point. You you have names for this person, right? (laughs) They they want to show up and they want to say, hey, what happened, why is this so meaningful? Who's that guy, why does it matter that she has a gun? Why does it matter that he did that? Why, when Snape says always, are you crying? What's going on in the story that matters so much and you're like, oh my Lord, I am a Christian but you are making it hard for me (laughs) right now because you need to leave and let me enjoy this. So a couple weeks ago, my wife Amy and I had a significant fight over the ending of a movie Because I had put the kids to bed, and I was going to watch a movie, and Netflix is terrible right now. But I found a movie called The Magnificent Seven. I do not highly recommend movies, because there's always something bad, and you guys think I recommended it. But let's just say I was watching this movie, and we'll call it Magnificent Seven, okay? Let's just Pretend. And it's an old Western movie with Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt. And so I'm watching this movie, and it's about this guy who takes over this town and and kills this lady's husband. And she goes to find these guys that are going to come back and avenge uh, the the murder of her husband and take this town back over. It's an amazing movie. Amy's been hanging out with her friends. She comes back in three-quarters of the way through the movie, and I am in on it. And it's the last scene when Denzel has the guy, the bad guy, like down. And Denzel, the, the hero of the story, is choking this guy. It's amazing. Just picture it with me <laughs> choking him, not even gonna shoot him. Like it is the moment when all of the satisfaction of a viewer is happening. This is what you longed for. Yes, choke him, Denzel. <laughs> it's amazing. And then the bad guy like while he's gasping for his last breath, pulls out a gun in his boot. It's a little gun in his boot. And he pulls it out, and he points it at Denzel. And you hear a gunshot go off. And you are in panic. You're like, tell me, Magnificent Seven, you did not let the villain kill the good guy in the last scene of the movie. And then the camera pans back to where you see the whole thing. And in the doorway of the church is the woman whose husband was murdered at the beginning of the movie holding a shotgun. And she's the one that pulled the trigger and she's the one that kills the villain. And I am like overwhelmed. I'm like, no way. It's the girl who at the beginning had her husband killed. This is amazing. And Amy's like, who's that girl? I'm like, oh, no. I paused it. I said, get out of here. This is not the time to ask, who's that girl? That girl's who this whole movie's about. That's the girl who lost her husband because that guy's the worst and Denzel was choking him and he tried to shoot Denzel, but she had a gun because her dad was a guy that taught her how to shoot and turns out she's awesome and now this whole movie's amazing and you ruined it! (laughs) So, all that to tell you, something is about to happen in Luke chapter (laughs) four where Jesus is about to do something that if you don't understand the backstory and the moment, and the clarification, and how this whole thing was about this, then in the moment, you're going to be like, who's that girl? Why does that even matter? Who even cares? Do we like Snape? Do we not? What does this matter? Like, who cares? But if you see the context, and you see the story, and you see what's happening in this moment, then this becomes so significant. Everything clarifies. And as a viewer, and as a participant, you start to believe, wow, this is what the story's all about. Wow, this is the moment when everything gets clear. Because listen, most of us when we think about Christianity, when we think about God, and most of the people in our city, most of the people on the college campus, they primarily view the Bible as a story that takes place on Earth. So just stay with me for a second. Think about planet Earth. Like Picture a globe in your head, okay? Can you go with me? Picture a globe. And so we're on planet Earth. And then there's me. So think about me on planet Earth. Now I want you just to stay with me. Picture this. A line, me on planet Earth. Now draw a line in your mind called the length of your life. And then at the end of your life, I want you to picture a little V that happens. And at the top of the V, there's the word heaven. And at the bottom of the V, there's the word hell. This is what most people think about, the story of the Bible, the story of Christianity, the story that, that they think about when they think about God is that here I am on Earth, and based on decisions I make throughout this life, whether I'm good enough or bad enough, or I, I have some karma going on, or maybe I have some religion uh, in there somewhere, but in the, the whole intent of the Bible is to tell me a story about me that ends up saying, at the end of my life, I will either go to heaven if I'm good, or I will go to hell if I am bad. If I don't do enough good, then, then I go to this bad place, but if I Doing enough good, I go to this good place, and it's a story about me, and it's a story about Earth, and it's a story about my life and where I end up in the end. And that's what most people think you believe. If you if you call yourself a Christian, that's what your neighbors probably think. That's what your coworkers probably think. That's that's what a lot of people think this story is about. And the problem is that that story is radically inconsistent with the book that tells the story. And the book that tells the story is called the Bible. So if you were to turn to page one in the Bible, you wouldn't hear a story about me living on earth trying to be good enough to get to heaven or hell. You would hear a story that says, in the beginning God created what? The heavens and the earth. And there was an interwoven overlapping between heaven and earth that all things with with humans and God were interacting at all times. And so there was not any distance between man and between God. And there was this beautiful harmony. So all things were good in heaven and earth. And then sin happened. Adam and Eve sinned and they separated themselves from God. And so now the remainder of the Old Testament talks about heaven being God's space and earth being our space. And so now we are separated from God. But the intent of the story was always that God's space and our space would, interlap, would, would overlap. And so the way by which the overlapping took place in the Old Testament was this thing called a tabernacle. Isn't that a fun word? Just say that at lunch today. You're like, man, tabernacle. Bring back that word, right? So, so the tabernacle was this place where God's space and human space overlapped. And the priest, one time a year, would go into the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement and he would lay his hands on a lamb and, and they would kill this lamb, signifying the sins of the people have gone onto this lamb. And now, because our sin has been paid for, the, the celebration would ensue because God's space and our space have overlapped again. God's space and our space no longer have distance. So throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, you had these priests that would go into the presence of God and they would kill the lamb, representing God's space and our space, overlapping all the way back to the Garden of Eden again. And then in addition to that, you would have kings that ruled God's people trying to create a place where it looked like the reign and the rule of God existed. So you had prophets, you had kings, and then lastly you had, sorry, you had priests, you had kings, and lastly you had prophets who wrote books of the Old Testament Bible to tell us a story about someone who was coming, who would be the ultimate priest who would pay the ultimate price to ensure that no longer would we have to be separated from God's space and our space, but he would be the ultimate priest that doesn't just uh, kill a lamb, but in our place would be the lamb, the ultimate priest, like capital P priest, and not only would he be a priest, he'd also be a king, the ultimate king, the capital K king who would rule an everlasting kingdom, ushering God's people into God's presence for no uh, more separation, no more distance, no more uh, disconnect. And he would also be the great prophet who would speak the very words of God with authority and with clarity and with exclusivity. So the entire story of the Bible was not me on earth going through life and ending up in heaven or hell. The story on earth is what is God going to do about the separation between his space and our space when he always intended there never to be a separation between his space and our space. And the Old Testament tells us, do not worry. There is a prophet coming. There is a priest coming. There is a king coming, and all of those things in one equal the word Messiah. There is someone coming who is going to be the great prophet, the great priest, the great king, and he is going to bring in himself an ushering of the kingdom of God into this world so there will be no more distance. That's the story that had been woven into the fabric of these generations. That's the story that had created anticipation. That is the story they grew up hearing about. That's the story they grew up telling. And in Luke chapter four, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes to the synagogue. And here's what we're going to read what happens in Luke chapter 4. God's people are longing for something to happen. And Luke chapter 4, it says this. And he, being Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. So this is his hometown. He goes back to his hometown. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So in this moment, Jesus is handed Isaiah a scroll. He intentionally picks this passage So just imagine being there. Like These are people that probably grew up with Jesus. These are his friends from elementary school. They hand him the roll. They're excited. They're like, man, Jesus is in the hometown. He's going to preach today. This is going to be awesome. And, And the guy hands him Isaiah. And everybody's like, ooh, Isaiah. Ooh, good book. That's a long book. Prophet Isaiah given to Jesus. Cool. I'm just giving you some commentary of what was happening in the crowd that day. Okay. They're just hanging out, and and this is a long scroll, so Jesus pulls out the scroll, and he starts unrolling, and they're like, oh, didn't pick Isaiah chapter 6. That's a good one where Isaiah sees the Lord. Ooh, skipped Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 has like a prophecy about a virgin birth. We heard Jesus was born of a virgin. Okay, he's still going. He's still going. He's still, Jesus, what are you doing, man? Like, Isaiah 55 through 60 are like, 65, that's That's like the story about the Messiah who's coming. He keeps going, he keeps going. They're like, bro, where are you going to land? He lands on Isaiah 61. Everybody in the crowd's like, that's a messianic prophecy. That's about the prophet, priest, king who's coming. They're like, oh, this is good, man. This is going to be a good day in church. It's not every day you get Jesus preaching on the messianic prophecy. I wonder what he has to say. I wonder what Jesus has to say about the coming Messiah. This will be a fascinating day at church. And so he reads it. The spirit of the Lord is on me. They're like, I know that because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set liberty of those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And they go, man, this is great. What is Jesus' take on the coming Messiah? What is this good teacher's take on the Messiah? on the one who's supposed to come and save us. Tell us, Jesus, what do you think about this? And Jesus sits down and looks at the crowd and says, today, this scripture just happened. And in the first ever recorded mic drop in human history, (laughs) Jesus drops the mic. And that's the end of his sermon. It's the shortest sermon in human history, guys. He reads a verse and goes, it is done today. And he clarifies to the people. I, I don't know if you, if you get this, but, but there would have been people in the crowd going, No, he did not. Just say it was him. And they got that other kid in Hebrew class who didn't pay attention going, Why does this matter? Who's, who's this verse about? They're like, Dude, pay attention in class. Jesus just said he was the Messiah. Yeah, what's the Messiah? Oh my gosh, heaven and earth and the kingdom and the tabernacle and the Lamb and the prophet, priest, king. Jesus just said he's all that. And the kid's like, Oh, really? I've heard about this. Yeah, it's happening right now. Pay attention. This is a significant moment where Jesus says, this has been fulfilled. And this word anointing, Jesus says, I've been divinely commissioned by God, not just to bring the good news, this is huge, but to be the good news. Jesus is not a preacher of the good news. He is the embodiment of the good news. He is the bringer of the good news. He's not a a good prophet, a good priest, a good king. He is the embodiment of a prophet, embodiment of a king, embodiment of a priest. And why is this so significant? This is so significant because it goes and it flies into the face of what most people believe the Bible is teaching and what maybe some of you and I even find ourselves believing sometime. And here's here's how I want to clarify this. Uh, This is so important that we get this. The Bible does not tell a story about us going somewhere. It primarily tells about a story about God going somewhere. The Bible does not primarily tell a story about us going somewhere when we die. The Bible primarily tells a story about God going somewhere to give life. But so many of us believe that this, this Bible is like a guide to the afterlife, how to be good enough so that one day I can stand before God and say, hey, let me in heaven. I opened doors for people. I smiled a lot. I was really kind, but we misunderstand this story is about God coming to give us life. So to say it a different way, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, those are interchangeable words, the kingdom of heaven is not somewhere you go after you die. It is something that has arrived. I know this is different. Like some of you are like, whoa, is this like real? This is in the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. Not that you go somewhere like this earth, big, bad earth, God's going to pull you out and send you somewhere. It is that God has invaded the earth to bring about his kingdom through the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, it has come. Jesus comes and says, hey, guys, I have great news. The kingdom of heaven is here. And the guys are like, where is it? What do you, what do you mean? He's like, you're looking at it. You're looking at it. I have brought to you in myself the kingdom. So, to say it in a theological term, here, here's what the commentaries say. What Jesus meant in the synagogue in Nazareth that day was that the true Messiah had arrived. The hoped for king, the son of David, the liberator, the savior, the world ruler, the bringer of justice and peace, the Messiah of God had come, and he was there in their midst. That's what Jesus said. And if you just stop right there, that's a good story. They're like, wow, man, like the next day on the Nazareth Daily News, it's like hometown boy claims that he's the Messiah, right? That's the story the next day in the newspaper. If you stop right there, you go, that's a big announcement and it's fine, but it doesn't cause a stir. Scripture says they spoke well of him in that moment. They're like, that's a really cool thing, Jesus. Way to go. And if you just stop there, you're like, cool, great, Uh, that was fun, all right, church is over, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus does say some other things, and what he says is not the kind of things you want to say to grow a church in that time period. This is not church growth strategy. This is Jesus clarifying some stuff. He's like, hey, I am the kingdom of God. I've brought the kingdom of God, but let me clarify what we're talking about so you guys don't misunderstand me, because you have some expectations, and I'm about to crush those expectations. Verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician heal yourself. Well, what, you you, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, uh, do here in our hometown as well. And he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. It's kind of harsh. It's like I know you guys aren't gonna accept what I'm about to say. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the days of Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Verse 28, and when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Five verses later, and all Jesus did was quote scripture, by the way. All he did was tell them some Old Testament stories. Five verses later, they are filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of town and they brought him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down on the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Isn't that a great passage? The mob took him to the edge of the cliff. They were gonna throw him off and looks like, but he just walked away. I don't know what he did, like gave him some some magic or something. I don't know, Uh, but he just walks away. So why is this significant for us? This, this grouping, this teaching is significant for us. Here's why. Uh, good news is available. But it's not good news available on our terms. It's good news available on Jesus' terms. This is great news. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. It is here. It is available. It has been manifest in who I am. Good news is available, but it's not available on our terms. It is available on Jesus' terms. And so if you, if you see those two stories he just told, those are very offensive stories. Story number one, he tells about God uh, who, who heals someone during a time of famine who is not an ethnically Jew person. So, so in this time, all of the Jewish people are hurting, all of them are suffering, and he tells a story how Elijah was sent to the land of Sidon, to a poor woman widow, who's non-Jewish, that's like four strikes, and in baseball it only takes three, right? Poor, Jew- non-Jewish woman, who, who's not a part of this ethnic tribe, and God is sent to her to heal her. And and, and there's some racism that starts to rise in the Jewish people. They go, hang on, I don't like that story. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus doubles down and tells them another story uh, about how Elisha, the prophet, was sent to heal Naaman the Syrian. He, He was sent to heal Naaman the Syrian. If you know who Naaman the Syrian was, he was a general in the opposing army against Israel. God sent a prophet to heal the opposing army's general of leprosy. And so what happens in this story is people go, no, 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 hang on a second. We like the fact that you were the hometown Messiah. That's cool with us. But we do not like what you were speaking when you start to talk about what the kingdom is going to be like. Because Jesus says, I am bringing a kingdom. But the kingdom I'm bringing is different than you think. And here's two ways it's different. The number one way it's different is this is not an ethnocentric religion just about me and the Jewish people doing something. This has to do with the ends of the earth. And this has nothing to do with we are the chosen insiders. This has to do with God being sent to the outsider to bring them in. This is Jesus saying racism has no place in my kingdom. There is no such thing as superiority in my kingdom. The only thing that's superior is me. That's it. There is no such thing as we are the insiders, they are the outsiders. Everyone is an insider if they come through me. This is in all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all races, all ethnic backgrounds. Not only that, all socioeconomic backgrounds. This is for all people of all places. And this message must make its way to the ends of the earth. Don't you dare think this is about you and your race and your superiority. You have radically misunderstood my message if that's where you're going. that enrages them. That makes them want to kill him. Racism is enraging to people who are racist. And Jesus says, that's not what we're doing here. My kingdom, what I've come to accomplish, what I've come to bring into the world is what it looks like in the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, there is no such thing as racism. It is not tolerated. What you see in my kingdom is a celebration of God's creation, a celebration of people who were made in the image of God being a part of this family. That's what you see in my kingdom. So what Jesus represents here in this world is what it looks like to live in another kingdom. And they don't like it because they go in my world, it needs to look this way. And Jesus goes, I'm not here for your world. I'm here to show you what it looks like in a different world, the right world, the right things. And I'll tell you two stories. One story about a widow who was healed, who never should have been healed because God's for the outsider. And another story about a general who was healed of leprosy, who should have never been healed because he is an outsider. Jesus says, there is no outsiders. I have come to redeem people from every ethnic background, from every socioeconomic background, from every stage of life, from every level of status. I have come to bring a kingdom and it is a kingdom that is available to all this is not a story about us on planet earth going through life ending up in heaven or hell. This is a story about Jesus invading the earth with his values and his kingdom. I know we don't understand kingdom because we don't live around kingdoms, but what it means to be in a kingdom is it has all to do with your king. If you have a good king, then the kingdom can flourish. If you have a terrible, tyrannical king, then the kingdom's not going to flourish. And Jesus says, where I am king, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. And that creates uh, the strongest kind of reaction in people. I think it is fascinating that so many people in our culture find Jesus to be uh, so palatable, so kind, so nice, so chummy, blonde hair, blue eyes, petting a lamb, smiling, great teeth, super white, right? Am I the only one that's seen these paintings? I have one hanging in my office as a joke. If you come in, it's a joke. Please don't judge me. You can judge me that I have a Jesus joke painting. That's fine. But don't judge me thinking that's really what I think. Jesus, when you see the real Jesus, it provokes a response in you. And often it looks like this, that when you see the real Jesus, he both offends you and attracts you. The real Jesus draws you in because you think that maybe he does have the answer that you've been looking for, but as you're drawn in, there's things about your life, there's things about my life that he's going to come against, and that sounds offensive. And so what it looked like for people that interacted with Jesus is they would get close and they would hear him say something they're like, oh, that's the worst thing I've ever heard but I don't wanna leave because you seem awesome but that seems really difficult from what I've been used to but man, I really wanna be near you. You might have the right answer but I don't like this. I'm offended and I'm attracted. That is great news, church. If you are not offended by Jesus, I'm not sure you've seen the real Jesus because he's offensive. But if you also see the real Jesus, you are so attracted to him, you're so drawn to him because he's good news. The difficulty is he's going to pull out of us things that we may not want pulled out of us, and that's what it looks like. So you can do whatever you want with Jesus, but please don't call him boring, and please don't call him fine and palatable. He's either offensive or he's attractive, and usually he is both. People that saw Jesus in the Bible either loved him or hate him. They either wanted to kill him or they wanted to follow him. They either ran away and betrayed him, or they were beloved and they ended up giving their lives for him. And that's what it looks like to follow the real Jesus, and here's the reason why he's like this. I'm going to read you these next passages. Now, here, here's what it means when I say he's offensive and attractive, because he starts to do some things that are hard for people. So, in verse 31, he does this. And he went down to Capernaum. So, this is just right after he almost got pushed off the cliff, but he walks away. He leaves Nazareth. He goes to Capernaum. Uh, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. You could circle that in your Bible, underline that. His word possessed authority. That's the number one reason why people are so offended. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons have incredible theology in the New Testament. They always know who Jesus is. You have never seen a demon like, interesting, Jesus, I've heard about you. Let's talk. I have some thoughts. They're like, we know who you are, leave us alone. Every time, just for fun. Write that. Demons, great theology. Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the reports about him went out to every place in the surrounding region. You never see Jesus fight with a demon. You never see an epic battle between Jesus and a demon. You never see an unclean spirit go, oh, I've been waiting for this and like cracks his knuckles and prepares to fight. You you never see it. You see fear, you see trembling and you see a word of authority and submission every single time. And everybody is like, how did that just happen? Jesus just spoke to this demon and it is gone. What kind of authority is this? Verse 38, and he arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf and he stood over her and he rebuked the fever. He rebuked a fever. I had 103 fever a couple weeks ago. I could not rebuke it. I tried. I had strep throat. I got strep throat twice in a row, in case you're wondering. Change your toothbrush. If you ever get strep throat. Because it comes back. You don't care. Okay. (laughs) I got better and then it came back. Okay. He rebuked the fever and immediately she got up and she began to serve. This is Peter, his disciple. This is his, his mother-in-law. Verse 40, and when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to them and Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. And the demons also came out of many of them crying, you are the son of God. Do you hear that again? The demons know who he is. They, they, they come out and they scream on their way out, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. He's telling demons to be quiet because they're telling a story. And he's like, it's not time for that yet. I'm gonna show people, but demons, you're not gonna steal what I've come to do. Verse 42, and when it was day, he departed and he went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and they came to him and 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 would have uh, kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the towns as well, for other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So let me give you a quick recap. Here's who Jesus is. You ready? The promised Messiah. The one who all the prophets point to. He's the true prophet. He's the final priest. He's the everlasting king who was sent by God to save sinners. That's who he is. That's what he's communicating who he is. If you showed up late to the movie and you go, who's Jesus? That's who he is. If you didn't pay attention to Hebrew school, that's who he is. Okay. What did he come to do? Here's what he came to do. He came to reclaim God's rule and reign over our world, thereby creating a people who operated in this world as though they belonged to another kingdom. He came to recruit, to redeem, to draw in all that were outsiders in, to make them like himself and send them into the world. And they're supposed to look like this world is not their home. The the other places in the New Testament call us aliens in this world. Isn't that a fun word? We're aliens. We belong to another kingdom. How is that possible? Because that kingdom has come into this kingdom, and now there's an overlap, and now it is made possible. And the thing that Jesus does that is so difficult for people is that he speaks with authority and clarity and exclusivity, and our generation struggles with that. We struggle with exclusivity, we struggle with authority, we struggle with clarity. But what's kind of interesting about us is we don't struggle with that in all areas of life, we just struggle with that in spirituality. When it comes to spirituality, we do not like clarity, we do not like exclusivity, we do not like authority. You know what we like? Hey man, whatever's cool with you is cool with you, just leave me alone. And we don't like to be clear. But I was thinking about a couple places, like what if your bank treated you that way? Like, hey, I want to see how much money's in my account. They go, you got some? You're like, uh, excuse me, some is not a number. Uh, how much money do I have in my account? Oh, yeah, you're doing, you're doing okay. Uh, no, could I speak to someone above you with authority on the matter? I'd like to know how much money I have I'm trying to buy something. Yeah, yeah, it's good, man, don't worry. No, you don't understand. I need a number with cent signs and dollar signs. See, we demand exclusivity. We demand clarity. We demand authority when it comes to money. I think when it comes to medicine... And matters of life and death and sickness, man, you demand authority, you demand clarity. Hey, hey, how's my wife doing, or how's my dad doing, or how's my kid doing? The doctor's like, yeah, you know, we're kind of thinking about it, we're trying, no, no, you can't think, like, tell me how they're doing. Uh, some of you know we adopted a little girl from China uh, four and a half months ago, and last week we took her to Seattle Children's Hospital for her first ear, nose, and throat uh, appointment, and, and we went to this uh, craniofacial pediatric care portion of the hospital. There's only two places in all of America that specialize in craniofacial pediatric care, and one of them is Seattle Children's Hospital, and so she goes in, and she's getting her ear checked, and she's getting all these procedures done, and the doctors are amazing. This place is awesome, and we go into uh, one of the rooms, and they like bring doctors in to check on us. They have five different doctors. One of the doctors that comes in, he's been with Seattle Children's for 20 years, he is a craniofacial pediatric plastic surgeon. That's all he does, is from your chin to your head for little kids. He takes care of their cosmetic plastic surgery needs, whether it's cleft lip and palate or microsurgery or whatever it is. For 20 years, this is all he has ever done, and he brings in like two other guys with him, like an entourage. Like they walk in, and you're like, oh, it just got real in here. <laughs> like whatever you do, it's probably awesome. 20 years, craniofacial pediatric plastic surgeon. And he starts to talk to us about what he wants to do with Lucy. And we don't know. We, we don't know anything, right? So we're just listening. And in all likelihood, we are talking to the guy who is the best in the world at craniofacial pediatric plastic surgery. Likely. But in our not knowing... We hear about the procedure that needs to happen, and it may take nine minutes, ten minutes, who knows? We don't know. And so Amy, lovingly, uh, just as, as a caretaker of Lucy, asked this guy, because Seattle's kind of far from Pullman, we just go, hey, is this something we could do, like, in Pullman, or is this something we could do in, in Spokane, like, it's a little closer to home? And we just asked this guy, could we do this somewhere else? And in all kindness, he looks back at us, smiles, while his two other guys are like, oh, God. <laughs> He looks at us and kindly he says, no ma'am, no ma'am. Don't let anybody else do this. It needs to be here and it needs to be me. And that's how it needs to happen. And it was the most amazing moment. (laughs) When he left, I told Amy, I was like, I got goosebumps when he was talking. (laughs) Like that was awesome. He spoke with such clarity. He spoke with such authority. He spoke with such exclusivity. If you're gonna do that procedure, it needs to be me. How in the world could he speak with such clarity and with such authority and with such confidence? The only reason he could do that is because he was qualified to do so. He was qualified. And so when we come to Jesus and we go, man, you are so exclusive, you are so clear, you are so authoritative, how dare you say that? That is a fair thing to say. You could say, how dare you, Jesus, unless Jesus is qualified to say so. What you want from the guy who has been doing this for 20 years, who's the best in the world, you don't want him to say, good luck in Pullman, see what happens. You want him to say, come to me, let me do it. And so what you want from Jesus in this moment is absolute clarity. D.A. Carson says this. He says, The authority of Jesus is a great comfort to people of faith and a great terror to the merely religious. Because here, here's what this means um, What Jesus has said he came to do was bring the kingdom of heaven to this world. And the primary reason this is hard for us is because here's the cultural message you hear all day. You ready? Here, here's the message. The cultural gospel is I'm okay, you're okay let's just leave it okay. That's the message. Jesus comes and here's his message. The message of Jesus is, I'm okay. You're not okay, (laughs) but it's going to be okay. One more time. Message of culture. I'm okay. You're okay. It's all fine. Jesus comes and goes, I'm okay. You're not okay, but that's okay. So, listen, I never want you to come to church and feel hopeless or helpless when you hear us get up and talk, but there's some stuff Jesus says in this passage that you need to identify with if you're going to allow Him to be who He wants to be in your life. Jesus says there are poor people who need good news, there are captives who need to be set free, there are blind people who need healing, there are oppressed people who need liberty and who need freedom. And listen, Resonate Church, He is talking about us. You are spiritually poor, Jesus says. You are spiritually captive. You are spiritually blind, you are spiritually oppressed. Our state without Christ is not okay. You're poor, you're blind, you're oppressed, you're, you're captive, this is what is true of us. And if you don't let that be true of you, then what Jesus says is true of him can't be true of you because you've said to Jesus, I'm okay, I don't need you. When the whole message of Jesus is, Jesus is okay, you're not okay. And so the first step to understanding the hope and the comfort Christ offers is understanding that we are poor and blind and captive and broken. And so that is our state without Christ. But our hope in Christ is that he's, he can be good news in all seasons, whether we're poor, whether we're rich, whatever's going on. He can provide freedom to the captive. He can bring healing to all who are blind. He can, he, he can remove oppression for all who are oppressed. And so the reason why this is so significant and the reason why I'm pushing so hard for us to believe that there is a kingdom of heaven and there's a kingdom of earth and they have collided in the person and work of Jesus and the way you transfer from the kingdom of earth into the kingdom of heaven is recognizing as you're not okay. And recognizing what Jesus offers you is healing. And most people think, man, my past is too dark. My story's too wrong. I could never, ever figure this out. And listen, this is the gospel message that your dark past and your present struggles don't disqualify you. They simply put on display how qualified Jesus is to save. Your dark past, your present struggles, they do not disqualify you. They simply put on display how qualified Jesus is to save he calls you poor, blind, captive, and oppressed. And that's good news because he is the one that can pull us out of that. He's the one that can draw us out of that. And if you know anything about Isaiah chapter 61, this passage that Jesus was reading, he actually leaves off one uh, sentence off the end of this passage. Jesus ends this, his reading with the, the year of the Lord's favor is upon us. And the, the final little uh, half a sentence goes there. that goes there is this phrasing. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to do all these things, and this is the year of the Lord's favor. And then right after that, the passage says, uh, and the vengeance of the Lord is upon us. The vengeance of the Lord is upon us. Jesus leaves that off. Why would Jesus leave off the vengeance of the Lord is upon us? Because what he's saying is there's a window of time Between the year of the Lord's favor, which is now, by year, that that doesn't mean actually just one year. It means the time of the Lord's favor is now. The vengeance of the Lord is coming. There's an opportunity for us. There's an opportunity, Jesus says, but it doesn't last forever. And so if you were to picture the kingdom of heaven as a circle and the kingdom of earth as a circle and they had a little overlap. And if you were to ask yourself, how in the world do I get from the kingdom of earth to the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is clearly saying, that in that little middle piece, you could picture a manger of a baby being born. And then you could picture someone who grows up and goes to the tabernacle. Remember that tabernacle we talked about? Goes to the tabernacle as a 12-year-old and says, this is my father's house. This place where earth and heaven collide, that's my father's house. Then he grows up and he starts teaching Uh, About the kingdom of God and he starts healing people you know why Jesus heals because in the kingdom of heaven there is no sickness in the kingdom of heaven there is no fever in the kingdom of heaven there are no demons so he starts to operate as though the kingdom of heaven is possible now So in Jesus's kingdom, there's no sickness, therefore he can heal. There's no demons, therefore he can heal. He starts to operate like that and ultimately he finds himself in a place where the Roman authorities uh, falsely accuse him and falsely try him and ultimately put him to death. So when you think about the kingdom of heaven as a circle and the kingdom of earth as a circle, in the middle of those two circles, the way by which we get from the kingdom of earth to the kingdom of heaven is no longer a tabernacle where a lamb is slain, it is now a cross where the Son of God was slain. And Jesus is so clear that he and he alone has the authority to be the one to bring us into the kingdom of God. So the gospel is not about what you can do in this world to earn your place in heaven. The gospel is about what Jesus has done in this world to guarantee your place in heaven. So Resonate Church, would you reject the notion that you are okay? You're not okay. You're not fine. And the most beautiful thing a doctor could tell you when you are sick is that you're sick. How terrible will it be for a doctor to be like, yeah, it's no big deal. No, listen, it's a big deal, Jesus says. You're not okay. But I have great news. I'm Okay. And so I've come to provide something for you, reject the notion that you're okay and reject the notion that heaven is someplace for later when you die, because that makes this earth purposeless. But instead, believe the fact, receive it, trust it, that God has brought a collision of heaven and earth. And now Jesus doesn't just want you to be a person in the kingdom of heaven. He wants you to go out into the world and represent the kingdom of heaven everywhere you go. I, I, t- I tell this to people all the time and they, they feel like it seems like overspeak. but when you go into your job, wherever you work, the kingdom of heaven just showed up because you showed up. When you go into your school, the kingdom of heaven just showed up because you showed up. When you go into your neighborhood, the kingdom of heaven just showed up because you showed up. And so the kind of response to this sermon is, is fairly simple. If you have not allowed Jesus to diagnose you as sick, and then heal you as your savior. Then respond to him in that way. Allow him to be all that he has said he can be in your life. Allow him to be all that he has qualified to be as your savior, as your healer, as your redeemer, as your sustainer. Allow him to be those things. And if you've already allowed him to do that, then rejoice and thank him and find your great comfort in the fact that this world's story is not you being good enough, but this story is about God coming to you when you weren't good enough. And redeeming you and and rejoice in that. And then the other response is asking yourself the simple question. Who in your life do you need to be good news to? If you bring with you the kingdom of God, then where in your life do you need to be good news? Where in your life do you need to alleviate a burden? Where in your life do you need to be Christ towards someone? Where in your life can you show someone what it looks like in the kingdom of earth to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Most people think because I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, I've got to be extracted away from the world. That's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is that we are sent into the world to embody the kingdom of heaven. So reject the notion you're okay. Receive the fact that Jesus has diagnosed you and he's able to heal you. And once you've been healed from that, be sent into the world as a representative of the kingdom, pointing people to a savior, who is wholly qualified to do everything imaginable to bring them into the kingdom. And this is the great news. This means that when you die, you don't really die. You just keep on living with Christ. That what so many people have said is available in the afterlife only, a life with Christ, Jesus says is available now. It's available right now. Now, sure, there's still sickness and there's still disease and there's still a lot of hard things in this earth. But what Jesus offers is available right now. And when we die, we just get to go continue to be with him in a world where there are none of these sinful things. But may this message be good news to you. And may you receive it and respond to it and enjoy it. Because this is the message that sustains us forever. So I want to pray that we could be these kind of people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the gift of life in Christ. God, thank you that you are bold enough to tell us we're not okay. God, I know that some of us even today, like even myself, God, when I hear that, I want to disagree with it. I want to fight back. I want to find myself saying this is not true because, God, I want to be okay. I want to be fine. I want to work to get my salvation, God, but that's the problem. And so, Lord, I pray we'd be honest enough this morning to recognize we're not okay. And we would trust, we would trust that you are the great healer. And God, just like that doctor in Seattle said, don't go anywhere else for this. God, I pray we would hear you in your your qualifications, in your authority, looking at the world saying, don't go anywhere else. You have a need. Don't you dare go anywhere else to meet this need. It has to be me. It has to be here. I pray that we would feel that and we would trust you, Jesus. And we would come to you recognizing you've paid it all. So Lord, let us rejoice in who you are this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.